from Ephesians, and it's 5, uh, 25 to 32 on page 1009. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with the water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about the church and Christ. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. The second reading this morning is from Matthew 18, beginning at verse 15. This is on page 844. Matthew 18. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault, just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything, they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three gather in my name, there am I with them. This is the word of the Lord. Well, let's pray. Gracious Lord, we do thank you that we have a roof over our head, that there is warmth coming from the air conditioning for the people around us, all these good gifts, Lord. We pray that we would be a people who are thankful, uh, that we would know that you are our Father who gives us every good thing. Amen. Uh, so we've been looking at true community, and as we've looked over the last couple of weeks, I feel like there's an elephant in the room. Uh, we have looked at the church being God's family, that we're holy. That church was God's idea. And yet the elephant in the room is, what you're probably thinking is, but hang on, hasn't the church done a lot of damage? Hasn't Christians 
hurt people, judge people, being hypocritical. How does that work with what the Bible says the church is? That people have this expectation when they meet Jesus of this excitement, this, this passion, and then they come to church and it can be dashed to pieces. Not by Christ, but by Christians. Are you probably familiar with Gandhi? Uh, he read the Sermon on the Mount, amazed by Jesus, went to his local church, about to walk into the building and was stopped, and someone said, maybe you should go worship with your own people. Send him away. He said this, if it weren't for Christians, I'd be a Christian. And I think that could be said by many people, if it weren't for Christians, I'd be a Christian. The church has hurt many people over the years and will continue to do so. So how do we reconcile the fact that we're holy and yet sometimes the church does things that are very unholy? Uh, church is supposed to be a place of love, and yet that's not the word you'd use when it comes to church. What I want to do this morning is just three things. Firstly, look at a common misconception about the church. Then we're going to look at some practical steps forward, and then introduce you, lastly, to the person who's been hurt by the church the most. So firstly, let's look at this misconception. There's a misconception which we have, which is, we believe the church is perfect or should be or close to it. Now, let me tell you about one church. I'm not going to name the name of this church because some of you know it. But this church uh, grew uh, really quite out of nothing because not people transferred into the church, but people became Christians. And this church grew and was vibrant. This, this group of Christians loved Jesus. There was a real expectancy that the Holy Spirit was at work and, and they were keen to serve. But there was one member of this church who committed some very inappropriate sexual activity. And he said, look, I'm an adult. Don't judge. And in his church community, they also affirmed and said, look, we don't want to judge. And so they just ignored it. But interesting, where this church was, the local community around it, they were appalled by this. But the church kept on validating this man. From all appearances on the outside, this church seemed to be healthy, but inside it was not. I mentioned I'm not going to tell you the name, but I will. It's the Corinthian church. You find them in the New Testament. They're in the Bible. And I say that up front because often we have a very pure view of the church, a more pure view than, in fact, the Bible does. The question is, is there a perfect church? The Bible's answer is no. It wasn't the case in the early church, and it's not the case now. It is not going to be the case until Jesus returns. And the expectation is Christians will sin. See, a Christian is someone who admits, I'm a sinner and I need forgiveness. You get a bunch of people like that together, what do you think is going to happen? More sin. Because there's just more sinners. See, you think about it, in the Lord's Prayer we prayed, what's at the heart of that Lord's Prayer? 
forgive us our sins as we forgive others who sin against us. Jesus presumes that we will need to ask for forgiveness again and again and again. And we're actually going to have to forgive others again and again and again. Once you become a Christian, your battle with sin does not end. But in some ways, you're more aware of it than you were previously. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 8, it says this, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. See, when you become a Christian, Christ does not hold your sin against you anymore. You are forgiven. But there is still sin in our life. And we think there's not, then we deceive ourselves. And I think sometimes in churches, there's this unhelpful naivety or expectation that sin's not in here, it's out there. And so we let our guard down. Uh, I'm going to give you an example uh, about, say, money in churches. Uh, When I was young, about three, uh, I ran into the back of church after the service and found the money plates, grabbed a whole wad of cash and ran out the front and showed my dad. And this desire, this excitement for money, right, doesn't end when you grow up. No, no, sometimes it gets worse. And it doesn't evaporate when you become a Christian. When you become a Christian, you're exposed that greed is a real problem. And you look under every rock under your life and you see it's there. So we know greed is within us. We know there's a problem. And so as a church, we don't want to be naive to think, It's not a problem, it's out there. No, no, no. We want to take extra measures of accountability. So at this church, right, we always have two people counting the money that's collected here who are not related. We always uh, have at the end of the year our books, our financial books, audited by independent body. Uh, No pastoral staff touch money. And if I speak in another place to get paid for it, the money comes straight to church, not me. We do all these things. Why? Because we have an awareness of sin and greed. And there's a temptation to steal, to take. A Christian should be aware of it more than other people. And so we want to take extra measures in a church. Because if we claim to be without sin... We deceive ourselves and the truth's not in us. So that's the first misconception. The misconception is that there's no sin here. No, 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 there is. And that Christians should be more aware of it and thus take more extra precautions than any other place. But nowhere does the Bible tolerate it. Nowhere does the Bible say, look, you're going to keep sinning. Who cares? It's no big deal. Oh, well. God in his word encourages us to take practical steps forward with not being complacent with the sin in our life. The word used, two words are used in the Bible is called spiritual discipline. And straight away as I say that, you're thinking, oh, that sounds fun. Spiritual discipline, right? But Jesus calls us to spiritual discipline. Because the dis- discipline is very similar to the word disciple. And if you're a disciple of Jesus, you want to grow. You want to change. You don't want to be complacent with where you're at. You want to be more like the Savior than who has saved you. Now, this spiritual discipline happens all the time. I don't know if you're aware of it. 
whenever we have the, the word read, preached, open mic, a word of prophecy, encouragement, you're being disciplined. Where there's times when you're going to be like, you know what? That got me. There's an area in my life which I've said to God, this is off flippance. But through the word being preached or read or someone saying something, the Holy Spirit's knocking on that door saying, I want to come into that area of your life, that area that has been off limits, and come in and change and deal with it and expose it and admit it and change. So that's happening all the time. But one of the key ways the Bible says this happens is by one another. In Galatians 6, verse 1, it says this, Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. What that's saying is, if you see someone at church and there's sin there and it's caught in sin, then having a conversation with them of acknowledging the sin in their life, why? To restore them. Highlighting the problem that you've seen. Now you do this, what does it say? Gently. Not in anger, not in spite, not in frustration, but gently listen, warmth, care. Saying, brother, I love you, but I'm not sure if you're aware of dot, dot, dot. Sister, you and I both love Jesus, but I'm, not sh- I'm, I'm concerned about this area, dot, dot, dot. Now, there's temptation, isn't there? It says in that verse, watch yourselves, you also may be tempted. The two temptations are this, pride, where you do it, where you think you're better than the person, where you say, you're wrong and you're not my brother. But the other temptation is to ignore it, not say anything. Excuse the sin where you think you're better than God and just put it to one side. Do you know why we do this? Out of love. Hebrews 12 verse 5, verse 6 says, The Lord disciplines the one he loves. God's disciplining you, discipling you out of love. And if we truly loved people in this church, then we want each other to have right living and right thinking when it comes to God. It means having a conversation that you may not want to have, but you do it because you love them. It's saying, brother, sister, you may have a battle with drunkenness. The times we come together, you always see to have one too many. Brother, sister, I know you love that person, but that boyfriend, that girlfriend, that fiance, you're not married to them. You can't live with them. It goes against God's intention. Brother, sister, you're always seeking to have arguments and divide over petty things. Brother, sister, you, you believe you need to speak in tongues to confirm that you have the Holy Spirit. That's not in the Bible. Brother, sister, you say you love church, but you're never here. 
brother, sister, you make jokes that are just crude and demise women and same-sex attracted people. If we loved people enough, it means we would have conversations such as that. Now, I can probably sense there's this anger that's sort of building up. And you think, well, who has the right to say stuff in my life? This, this is my private life. But let me just say this. I imagine most of the people in this room can't stand Christians who are hypocrites. It's the one bugbear we all have. And yet, we can't stand it when someone points out the inconsistencies in our own life. And the thing is, we can't have it both ways. We need each other to point out areas where we are blind. Or we've said, I can be a Christian and still enjoy this sin. I'll give you personally when I've been on the receiving end of this. Um, so someone in my life is dear to me. Loved me enough to point out a time when I was uh, perpetually lying about things. And they did what Galatians 1, a 6 verse 1 said, that they highlighted the issue, they did it gently, and they wanted me to, to expose the problem and restore me. Now, though it was done well, you know how I responded? I sat there and listened and looked like this. That sort of passive-aggressive, just staring. And then I opened my mouth, and it wasn't, you were right, I need to change. You know what it was? Excuses. Well, you don't know, mate. Like, you don't know the situation. I'm tired. You're racist. Oh, hang on, why? But all these weird kind of excuses is coming out. And you know what you do? Then you start blaming them. Well, hang on, what about that time when you dot, dot, dot? Look at your life. You're... I should have just shut up and said, you know what? Though I didn't want to hear that, I needed to. There's a prayer I heard this, this week, and I think it is such a beautiful prayer, but I'm afraid to pray it. Dear God, please give me Christian friends who will rebuke me, and please help me to thank them for it. But what about the Christian who refuses to change? One who says they're a follower of Jesus, but wants to ignore God and his word. Jesus provides a, a process, a, a practical model of what to do. Turn with me to Matthew 18, page 844. It was read for us. It says this. If your brother or sister sins, let's just stop there. Notice it's brother or sister. This is not for people who aren't Christians. This is family. Uh, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, what business of it is mine to judge those outside the church, right? So this is for brothers and sisters, members of Christ. If your brother and sister sins, go out, go and point out their fault, just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you've won them over. See, that first step is that initial conversation, done face-to-face, -face, right? Not Facebook or texting, whatever. It, it might be you even write it out in the letter, but you say, can I read this to you? face-to-face, -face, marked with gentleness. And you know what? Often, 
my experience is often people who are humble, people who are Christ-honoring, they say, you know what? I didn't want to hear that, but I needed to. And now this may take days or weeks, right? But in the end, the Spirit, you see people, the Spirit at work and say, you know what? You've won me over, quote, unquote. I want to change. Thank you for addressing the problem. But, verse 16, if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. See, from here, it's involving one or two more people. And the purpose of this is, is really evidence to show that it's, it's not just the one person biased, but this is a pattern that is seen not by one, but by more people. And we do this to say, you know what? We love you, my brother. We love you, my sister. But what you're doing is not pleasing in God's sight. But verse 17, if they refuse to listen, if they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. Now this is someone who's continually ignored the problem. It says, who cares about God and His Word? And the purpose is to drive them to repentance, to see the seriousness of their sin. Now you might be thinking, why go public? Because the church is not individualistic. It's corporate. It's a group where our actions affect us all. Like as it says in 1 Corinthians, don't you know a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Then you may be thinking, oh, I don't think Jesus would like this if this was to happen. But what does it say in verse 20? For where two or three gather in my name, where this, there I am with them. That when spiritual discipline happens, Jesus is present all the more. As one theologian said, when discipline leaves a church, Christ goes with it. Now, it's important to say this step is really for unrepentant, outward, public, ongoing, significant sin. It is not for someone who's battling with sin. That's all of us, right? It's not saying, you know, I, I want to do this, but I often do that, and I'm sorry, and there's this battle. But for Public, outward, unrepentant sin, Jesus is calling this action appropriate. The times when it's used in the Bible, the sins were extreme divisiveness, gross sexual immorality, the teaching of heresy. And the next step is very drastic as it goes on. It says, They refuse, and if they refuse to listen, even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. As 1 Corinthians 5 says, talking about that uh, man who wanted to justify his own behavior when it comes to sexual sin, the consequence was expel the wicked person from among you. Excommunication, saying, you know what, you can't gather with us anymore. You can't worship with us anymore. You can't participate in Lord's Supper. And you might be thinking, I don't think our church would do this, would we? We you know why we do it? We do it out of love. Just like when you rebuke someone, excommunicating someone, saying you need to leave, is always done for the purpose of love. It says in 1 Corinthians 5, the purpose of expelling that immoral brother was so that 
his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. But the purpose is always wanting them to see the error, the problem with their sin, and that they would repent and come back to right relationship with God and to each other. My daughter, Audrey, who's four, four and a bit, when she does something wrong, playing with friends or cousins, what do I do? Send her to time out. I say, you cannot be with us anymore. You need to leave. And my intention in sending her to time out is so that she would see what she's done is wrong and come back and apologize and so she can participate in the, with her friends. If I said, look, you've done something wrong, who cares? Brush it to one side. I'm telling her and the people, her friends, that who cares if you say nasty things? Who cares if you hit them? But it's always sending someone away as a purpose that they would see the problem and bring them back and restore. And can I just say, when it comes to the atrocities the church has done over the years, you will often see a lack of spiritual discipline. So take, for example, child abuse in churches. I'm so thankful to God for the Royal Commission Child Abuse Institution because it has exposed evil that has left, been left unchecked unaccounted for. And you'll see there that there is no dealing with sin but a pushing it to one side. No driving people out from the church community and into the hands of the police but tolerating sin, covering it up. And if that has been your experience, I want to say I am so sorry. Please talk to someone. Know that we as a church will believe you if that is your story. Because taking sin seriously is what the church should be about. And because we want to take sin seriously, we need to take spiritual discipline seriously. So that's the second thing. Let's move on to the third and final point. If I was to ask you to put your hand up if you had been ever hurt by a Christian, I imagine this room would have all hands raised. But there is someone who can put their hand up even higher than us. It's God himself. You know, one of the interesting, one of the main metaphors in which God expresses his love for his people, the church, is not an employee-boss relationship. It's not a pen pal. Uh, it's not a, you know, a friendship. But it's a marriage. An intimate, personal relationship, a marriage. And those of you who are married, you know, the closer you are, the harder it hurts when things go wrong. And God chose intentionally this metaphor to describe his relationship with his people, even though he knew, because he knows all, he knew that they, we, would be unfaithful to him. We would let him down. He knew it, but he still chose that metaphor. See, the Bible begins and ends with a wedding. In the beginning, there's God and his people, and they're in paradise, the Garden of Eden. It's like a honeymoon. But what happens? Humanity walk out, saying, I think I've got a better offer. And God really spends most of the first half of the Bible, the Old Testament, calling back his bride. 
Isaiah 54 says, the Lord, your, For your maker is your husband, the Lord Almighty is his name. And he calls back his bride again and again. He rescues his bride from the, the clutch of the Egyptians and takes it into paradise, the land flowing with milk and honey. But you know what? There God's people are unfaithful to him again and again and again. They go to other things for love. They worship other gods. They seek satisfaction in other things. And God sends love letter after love letter. They're called prophets. Reminding, I am here. I want to be in relationship with you. Even though you've hurt me profoundly, come home. But those letters fall on deaf ears. So God himself says, enough is enough. In Jeremiah chapter 3, it says this, I gave faithful, faithless Israel her certificate of divorce and sent her away because of her adulteries. That God gave his bride numerous warnings. Come back. Mercy, love, grace is there. But enough was enough. He cannot tolerate sin. And he sends her away and divorces her. But that's not where the story ends. Though God knows full well how much pain and sin the church, God's people can do, he doesn't give up on her. God comes personally as Jesus Christ. And what does he do with the church? Does he shame her, mock her, humiliate her? He loves her. Even though we were not deserving in the slightest, what does Ephesians 5 say? He loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. And to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Yesterday at the Living Single Conference, one lady said, that's not a description of my future husband. It is a description of who the church is and what Jesus has done for us. And she's right. See, as we stand as a bride, as a collective before Jesus, all sorts of things are on us, hypocrisy, pride, selfishness, guilt, all sorts of things. But Jesus, who loves us, even though he didn't have to, washes them away. So we stand before Jesus, radiant, blameless, and he's done it all. See, those of us who are Christian should know how sinful we are because of what it took Jesus to do on that cross. And we should know how loved we are because Jesus did it, even though we didn't deserve it in the slightest. And that reality should drive us to take sin seriously because of who we are. And so now we live in this tension. We live in this tension where we are Jesus' cherished bride, where we're blameless, holy, faithful in his sight, and yet we still sin. We still are unfaithful to him. But that tension has an expiry date because there's another wedding coming. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, we watched many of us the royal wedding live where Megan walked down the aisle 
to Harry. He was a passionate American preacher. He was a good, lots of flowers. And the world watched. But there's another wedding that's coming that's far more impressive. As Revelation 21 says, the church is prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. That's us. And that sin, that guilt, that shame, that pinned to us is pinned no more. But this purity, perfection of Christ is pinned to us. And we stand there washed, white, white as snow. And on that final day, the church will walk down that aisle, us, and we will see Jesus at the end. And he will have a smile from here to here. His bride has come home. And she is not marred with sin, not plagued with guilt, but perfect. And Jesus will look forward to that day. And we will look forward to that day. That though we didn't deserve it, though we're unfaithful, Jesus says, you were worth dying for. And someone may ask on that day, is the church perfect? And on that day, the answer will be a resounding yes. Yes. Let me pray. Gracious Lord, we ask that we as your people would take sin seriously. In our own lives, first and foremost, that we would not be complacent, but that we would be actively, by the power of your Spirit, seeking to expose it and to change. We ask that we would love our brothers and sisters enough to gently highlight areas which we may be blind to. We need each other in this. And we ask that we would do this because we are your bride, that sin leads to death. But you, Lord Jesus, entered that death so that we can live. We pray that we would be who you say we are and that we would look forward to that day where our sin will be no more, where the battle will be over and that we would be made perfect inside and out as we see you face to face. Amen.